fun. Everybody want to wave at the kids as they leave? Make them real nervous. See you guys. We'll see you soon. It won't be soon. It'll be about an hour and a half, but we'll see what happens. Uh, For the rest of you, Genesis chapter 15 is where we're going to be. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Flip a couple pages in the beginning. And Genesis 15 is where we will land. So uh, I had the joy of trailer duty this morning. Uh, If you have not been around here for a long time, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But uh, everything you see here that we've set up in front of you comes every morning about 7.30 on a trailer. We have a team, family groups rotate through and um, set everything up, tear everything down, and then we pull the trailer again. So I had a thought this morning. Uh, as I was putting the trailer on at 28 degrees, that I am just ready for summer. Anyone else? Like I just had the uh, mirage of a warm swimming pool, the sun coming down. And here's the reality. I hate pools. And I really don't like summer. But it is cold, and I'm a little over it, right? We've had our snow. Let's move on. But, but when I was thinking about the pool, the, the image that came to my mind is our kids are now getting older, and they're all fearless. We'll jump straight in. But, but the moment I started thinking about the pool, it was uh, me pleading and begging my kids as I'm in the pool, and they're standing on the edge to jump right? So maybe some of you remember this. I mean, the, they're shaking. Their knees are shaking in their swimmy diapers. And, and literally, my hands are all but four inches from them. And I'm pleading with them, hey, baby, trust your dad and jump. I promise nothing's going to happen. Trust me, just jump. I promise. And so I would go back and forth and be loving and then be like, jump, jump. One, two, three, jump. You know, like my patience wears out, and then they start crying, and then Bree scolds me, and then I go, okay, baby, you got this. But here's how I can always tell if they believe me. If they believe that their dad has them, that I'm not going to drop them, that they're not going to drown, that they're going to be safe if they jump into my arms, the way that I know they believe me if what? They jump. If they actually jump into the water, jump that little small six-inch gap between my fingers and their swimmy diapers, if they make that leap of faith, I know that they believe me. And if they don't, then they won't make that jump. And what we're going to see this morning in Genesis 15 is that simple jump that in the world of Abraham, it feels like a massive leap. But really, the belief is only a six-inch jump for Abraham to walk into obedience of what God's called him to do, but he believes, and the ramifications of his belief is just incredible. So, uh, Genesis 15, we're going to read really 1 through 20, and if you're looking ahead, you're going to laugh at me, verse 19 through 20, when I try to pronounce these names, but uh, if I do them all perfectly, I get a raise, is what the elder said. So, uh, Genesis 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Everybody there? And just as a caveat, if this is your first time, if you don't own a Bible, please let us know. Anybody with a green banner on, anybody that you see that might know what they're talking about, we have Bibles. We want to give you some because uh, we want you to have the Word of God for your own. So uh, Genesis 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, The man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
And he, being Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought out all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and after they shall come out with great possessions. We still tracking? All right, five more verses. Verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. And you shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites and the Kenites and the Cabanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Pretty good, right? Right? 10%. Elders be good with that? 10%. So with all that being said, let's pray and then we'll do our best to dissect some of this. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful that, that you're so gracious and kind to us that you've given, you, given us your word that you don't leave us to guess what you want for us. We don't, you don't leave us to guess who you are, your character, your nature. It's all fully displayed in your word. And so, God, this morning, would you illuminate the scripture to our hearts? Uh, would you bind it to our souls just how good of a God you are? We love you. Thank you for loving us. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Now, if this is your first week, let me kind of catch you up on what we're doing a little bit. So we are starting in a few weeks the book of Exodus, uh, and we're going to be in there for a very, very long time. Uh, So what we're doing is we're doing an eight-week primer, going through the book of Genesis to get us prepared for and ready for the book of Exodus. So Genesis is 50 chapters. Our typical expositional preaching model is nice and low and slow and just making sure we get all that God has for us. But with the book of Genesis, we're doing a quick flyover. So uh, we've talked about creation. We've talked about the fall. We've talked about uh, Noah. We've talked about the Tower of Babel. And now we're getting into Genesis. But um, look back real quick at Genesis 11 uh, because Stephen Partrick preached last week. did a really great job preaching through the Tower of Babel uh, and, and what that means and what takes place and then how that prepares uh, the people of God for Israel, but also how he prepares them for, uh, excuse me, how prepares Israel for the promised land and then continuing on to us today. So I want to look at Genesis 11.4 because I think this is the promise, this is the main thing that's going on that's going to lead us to where we are today. Genesis 11.4 simply says this, Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And this is the imperative right here. And let us make a name for ourselves. Let us be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Let us be a na- make a name for ourselves. I mean, we can, we can see the sin just shining through that statement. That Babel was a train wreck. Why? Because they were turning their back on the God that created them, the image that they bear, and they were trying to make a name for themselves. And really, if we, if we diagnose that, the sin that, that runs deep in every single one of us is this right here. That we want to make a name for ourselves, that we want to be in control, that we want to be in power. And, and I know some of you are going, no, I don't, I don't want to be in control. I don't want to be in power. But that by itself is you demanding that you're in control and power of your own life, right? That you get to make the call, what you do or what you don't do, that you want to make a name for yourselves, that I want to make a name for ourselves. So this is where we find ourselves in the story, is that the people that God has created now with one voice want to make a name for themselves, for their name and their renown should be the most famous thing in the land, not God. So that's the tension, that's the rub that we find ourselves in. And, and if you're like me, we all find ourselves in that tension. And so for this morning, I think it's important that we keep going because we see this is chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, we get introduced to this name, man named Abram. Now, just I'm, I'm just going to be honest here. You're going to hear me say Abram and Abraham a lot. I'm going to use those words interchangeably. His name gets changed. At this point, it's still Abram. But if you hear me call him Abraham, you cannot take away that raise that I got for pronouncing all these names right. All right? So with that being said, we meet this man named Abram. Uh, and at this point, he was still a moon and star worshiper from Mesopotamia. Right? Now, here's, can I chase a rabbit real quick? George Whitfield was one of my favorite uh, revival preachers, right? You sh- I mean, just what he did was phenomenal. He could preach to upwards of 40,000 people with no microphone system. I mean, just nuts. And it was said that he was such a beautiful orator that people would be brought to tears by the way that he said Mesopotamia. How weird is that? Does that bring anyone to tears? Mesopotamia. Anyways, that's just, I read that one time, and this just always stuck with me. That is the most bizarre thing. Not the gospel, Mesopotamia. Anyways, so, so we see uh, Abram at the end of chapter 11, and then we go right into 12, 1 through 3, which is a really kind of pivotal beginning for Abram. We see, yeah, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we see a dichotomy of chapter 11, the, guy, the Tower of Babel. They're trying to make their name great. They're trying to be in control. But then we get to 12 and God says, hey, Abram, if you follow me, I will make your name great. You're not going to do this. I'm going to make your name great. There's going to be churches thousands and thousands of thousands of years later, they're going to sing Father Abraham. Don't act like you ain't Baptist. What comes next? Right? So, so your name is going to be famous forever, Abram. Do you believe me? And then we see down, in, uh, not down, the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 7, uh, Arise, walk the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Marmi, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So 
Abram's believing God. He's doing what he says. He's following him through. We see in chapter 14, uh, Lot gets taken. So Abram gets 318 of his boys. They go after. They go hard on the people that took Lot. Take Lot back. Get all these possessions. But Abram goes, I don't, I don't want any of this. I'm going to give 10% to the Lord. I'm going to give everything else back. I don't care about these possessions. Nothing matters to me. I'm, I'm here to please God. So we see Abram doing the right hard things all the way through chapter 12, 13, 14. But we also have kind of a reality check for Abram, right? Because we see when they go to, uh, this is probably one of my favorite stories, uh, when he, Abram goes to uh, Exodus, and, or excuse me, Egypt in Genesis 12, uh, he tells his wife to lie. Hey, when we get there, you're beautiful. They're going to want to marry you, so they're going to kill me to marry you. So tell everyone you're my sister. So, yes, Abram's great, but he's also a coward, right? I don't want to die. Just tell people you're my sister. So she does because she's a good wife, and then it comes to find out you're not, oh, oh my gosh, we married, we were taking your wife because we thought it was your sister. Abram, just get out of here, right? Like, you are weird. Get out of here. So this is where we find ourselves after all this has taken place. Go back to chapter 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. After these things... So what I've just briefly expressed is these things. And I would encourage you just to go back and read 12, 13, and 14 because there's a lot going on in the life of Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what, what are you going to give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So what we see here is, is all these promises that God has made to Abram. Abram's just lovingly going, hey, but God, what's going to happen? Like, yeah, you're going to give me this land, but I don't have a child. But you said you're going to give me a child, and I still don't have a child. So all this land, and what's, what's going to happen to it? And is it going to go to Eliezer, who was his, one of his servants? I mean, is it just going to go away? Are you actually going to fulfill the promises that you said you were going to fulfill? Now, for me, nothing drives me more crazy as a dad than the question, when? I'll tell my kids, hey, we're going to do this. It's going to be great. Dad, when are we going to go? Dad, when are we going to go? Uh, guys, I told you in a couple weeks. Dad, is it a couple weeks? Uh, but my kids do it in a really cute, sneaky way. They ask how many more sleeps, right? So like, oh, that's cute, but that's still annoying because it's still 12 sleeps away. Uh, but this constant nagging, when, when, when. And so we don't see this from Abram, but we do see a genuine question. God, I'm not, I'm not doubting you. I'm just asking you, when is this going to take place? Yeah, the land is great, but, but what about the child that you promised me? Because we see at this point, Abram's getting to be an old man. That he's getting older in his age, and he's asking, God, when is this going to take place? And God just simply says, you have no clue what I'm doing. So God lovingly, graciously walks Abram out to the stars that he used to worship. He looked at the moon that he used to think was a God and said, you see all these stars out here, Abram. Your, your offspring are going to be more. You, there's no way that you can count those stars in the same way there's no way that you can count. Be patient, wait, but I will fulfill the promises I made to you. And this continues, look with me at verse 7. And he, got, he being God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So again, we can just see Abraham going, okay. But, verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
Like, like yeah, it's here, and, and we're in this land, and I see it, and I've walked it, but it's still not mine. How, how do I know that you're actually going to fulfill the promises that you've said? So he said to him, bring me a heifer of three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought these out and cut them in half and laid each on half of the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now, now this sounds pretty strange to us. And, and really, as we were preaching through Noah, one of the things that just is somewhat comical to me is Noah, he's got all the boat, big boat, animals come on the boat. And as soon as Noah lands and they empty the boat, what does Noah do? Make a sacrifice. So those poor animals that like just lived through the flood, it's like, man, we made it. Nope, just get in your sacrifice. But so these animals that have made it through the flood are now sacrificed. Does anyone else see that as ironic? I just like, that would be my luck. Like, dang it. Like, all right, let's go. Uh, so, so we see this taking place, right? All these animals are cut in half, laid over, which is just bizarre, right? This is, this is bizarre. I promise you if this is your first time, this is not about to take place in this room. We're not about to do this. But, but in their day, this is how they would make a covenant with each other, right? So they would cut the animals in half. They would make a walkway through. So like this side would be the heifers. This side you would be the goats, heifers versus goats. And then the, the two would walk through this together, And here's the symbolism. If either one of us break this covenant, then let what happened to these animals happen to us. Let let what happened, let death come upon us. So this covenant is so serious, we're both going to walk through the middle. If anything happens, kill me. I, I deserve it because I'm walking through this willingly together. If anything happens, if I break my covenant, break my promise, let what happened to this heifer, what happened to this goat happen to me. This is the way that they'd make the covenant promises. And so he asked, God, how do I know that I'm going to possess this land? And God's response is, let's make a covenant. Let's formalize this thing that I said back in chapter 12. Let's go ahead and do a covenant ritual today so that you will know, so that you'll have assurance that this is going to take place. But the promises continue. Look down with me at verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now let me stop real quick, because if there's one drum that I've tried to beat the last eight years here, is that we have to have a higher view of God. That if, if we don't behold the majesty of God our Father, then we're going to miss all of this. And so this detail that Moses includes in this story is massively important for us because when the presence of God came into front of Abram, what was his response? What up, God? You good? Man, I'm so glad you could join us today. No, his response was dreadful and great darkness. He was terrified. And we see this over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. When the presence of God shows up, it's not a laissez-faire deal. But there is dread and fearfulness because our God is fierce and he is powerful and we have to understand that. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be in a land that is not theirs and the servants there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. So I just want to do something real quick because we have, we have the ability to do this because God's going to make a few promises to Abram of what's going to happen to the people of God over the next four to 800 years. And I just think it's important for us to see that when we talk about God as a promise-making and promise-keeping God, we have the ability to look back and go, okay, here's what God's said, 
but did he actually fulfill it? And part of the C.S. Lewis would call this chronological snobbery, right, that we think we're better than, we read the Bible and go, man, how could Abram be so dumb telling his wife that he should, she should be her sister, right? Like, we can look back and say that, but at the same time, we are that way. We are the Abram. We're not the heroes of the story. We're the people that didn't even make the page, Right, so, so I just want to briefly look at these different promises and see how God fulfilled it. So verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and their excuse me, and not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. So what's God talking about? Well, this is the whole premise of Exodus. This is where we're about to be going, that the people of God were enslaved in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. And God says 400 years, which is a round number, right? Because the number was 430 years that the people of God were in slavery with Egypt. So the promises God made in Genesis 15, 13. True, correct. Let's keep going. Verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I will bring judgment. So we see in Exodus, we're looking at 10, 12, uh, chapter 10, chapter 12, the plagues come upon Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. We see the 10 plagues take place, and finally when Pharaoh lets the people go, Exodus 12, 35 through 36 says this. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So God says, hey, your people are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but when they go, when I bring judgment upon this nation, they're going to leave with great possessions. If you're keeping track, check. That's another promise that we can look back and say, yep, God kept that one. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your father in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. So God's telling Abram, hey man, you're going to die at a good, ripe old age. You're going to be faithful to the end. You've got this. And we just see a few chapters later in Genesis 25, verse 7. The days of the years of Abraham's life were 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died at a good, age, good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered with his people. So did this promise come true? Yes. Now, I know this seems monotonous, but, but this has massive importance for us. If we can't trust the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, then what are we doing here? We could do a lot better things with our time right now if God's promises did not come true. And we see again in verse 16. And they shall come back here to the land and the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the Amorites are the main group of people within Canaan, within the promised land. And God's saying their sin isn't over. Their sin isn't over. Their sin is still growing in me. I'm still getting frustrated with them, but I'm still giving them a time to repent. I'm still giving them a time to quit worshiping their idols, quit hating me, and come to repentance. But it's not going to happen. And i got to let their sin continue to fester. The time is not right yet. And at that time, their accumulated iniquity was so great that God will no longer tolerate the presence in this land. 
So a few years ago, we preached, and I think it's online somewhere, we preached through the book of Joshua, and that was the main text for us that we kept coming back to. How in the world could God uh, bring them into the promised land and have slaughter after slaughter after slaughter? Because there was hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years for these men and women to come into repentance, and they never did. So God, as a just, right judge, judged them for their sin. So we see all these promises taking place. We see Abram going, hey, what about the kids? What about the land? We see God preparing this covenant ceremony. And then we see all these perfect promises that now we can look back and go, man, all of those were fulfilled to a T. How incredible is this, our God? We should, this should draw some worship in us. But, but I want to zoom in here real quick at the keeper of the promise. The keeper of the promise. Because here's what's taking place. Look with me at Genesis 15. Uh, we're going to look at 17. So, so the, the, the ceremony has been made. The animals have been cut in half. But Abram has now fallen asleep. And what takes place? Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river of Euphrates. I'm not doing it again. So Abram's asleep. God passes through the covenant ceremony. What then does this mean? That this is an unconditional covenant. That Abram... And the people that he represents, the people of God, have no say in this covenant. That God is going to do it regardless of how Abram acts, regardless of how Moses acts, regardless how the people wandering through the wilderness act, regardless of how Joshua acts, regardless how Saul, David, Solomon, we can go through all of redemptive history, no matter how the 12 disciples act, no matter how the early church acts, nothing matters regardless of how we act. God is going to keep his covenant because he was the one that walked through by himself. And if we don't see this, we don't stop to get the weight of this, then we totally miss our interaction with God. Because no longer was it about Abram and and his ability to do the right things. It was solely going to happen on the shoulders of God. I mean, this is just bonkers when we stop to think about this. Why would God do this? I mean, why in the world would God say, you're going to disappoint me? You're going to fail me. You're going to turn your back on me. You're going to sin against me. I mean, just even think about this, right? We'll get this to the Exodus, no spoiler alert. But when Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God to get the law, what do the people do? They build an idol. While Moses is literally meeting the presence of God, the people are down below building an idol to worship because they're bored. Now, if you're anything like me, that would have been it. That would have been the final straw. Because we'll see as the people cross through the Red Sea, as God does this miraculous exodus out of Egypt into freedom, three days later they're going, man, I wish I'd go back. I mean, three days later, I wish I would just go back to slavery. It was easier there. I know there's bread falling from heaven, and we have all this gold and silver that God gave us from Egypt, and we just saw the Red Sea split. And, but can we just go, can we just go back? I mean, just think about that. Why in the world? God knew that that would take place, but he still made this unconditional covenant with Abram. I mean, it just, just, I mean, I know this is not a theological term, but it's just bonkers, man. Why would he do that? Because that's the character of our God. 
That's the grace and mercy of our God. That's the love of God display. So, so we need to look very carefully, lest we think that it had to do something with Abram, that Abram was this really important person. We need to look to see what does God do and what does Abram do. What does God do and what does Abram do? So look back with me at verse 6, Genesis 15, 6. And, and I told um, I, I promise you our sermons are not sp- sponsored by Jethro's Coffee. I just spent a lot of time there. But I told Andrew at Jethro's this week that I, I was really hesitant to preach Genesis 15, 6, if I'm honest. Uh, because there's a little bit of hipsterness in me because it's the most common, one of the most common verses in the entire Old Testament. One commentator said Genesis 15, 6 is the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. And so just my sin goes, well, I'm too cool to teach that text then. Right, if that's the most common, like I'm going to find the most obscure detail of Genesis 15. But the more I think, pray, consider, this, this verse is just crazy. Let me bring out that theological term, bonkers. Because it, it literally makes no sense. I mean, what we're about to read here makes no sense. And we look at the church across the country, not, not the branch, the, the universal church. Why is our worship fading Why do we have a low view of God? Well, it's going to come back to this passage right here. Genesis 15, 6. And he, being Abram, believed the Lord. And he, being God, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, it's so easy for us to skip over this. But Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted to him as righteousness. The story of Abraham and God can be summarized into two statements. Abraham believed... God did everything else. Abraham believed, and God did everything else. So just think about it for a second. What is it that God did in this chapter? And this is not an exhaustive list, but let me just read a few. God spoke to Abram. God said that he was his shield. God said that he was going to give Abram a great reward. God handles the questions and the doubts of Abram. God promises an heir to Abram. God shows him the stars as a way to encourage him. God brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans. God is going to give him a land to possess. God again allows Abraham to question him and patiently responds. And God institutes an unconditional covenant by himself. That's just chapter 15. And what does Abram do? He believed. Abraham believed. God did literally everything else. Now this belief, this is where we'd get the New Testament word faith, it really requires two things, and it's kind of ingrained into it, but it's a repentance and belief. Right? It's a repentance and a belief. We can tell, like I said earlier with my kids, I can tell if they believe me if they jump. And God could tell that Abram believed him because he obeyed. It was a repentance of changing your mind. So we get to the the actual uh, language of repentance. It literally means to change the way that you think. So Abram was thinking, that makes no sense. I'd rather do it this way, but I believe God, so I'm going to repent. I'm going to change the way I think. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. This is what's taking place here. It's a belief that actually leads into Action And although Abram does not speak, Scripture does say he believed the Lord. The Hebrew sense is that he believed and continued believing in the Lord. Uh, W.H. Griffin Thomas says this, The original Hebrew word for believed comes from a root whence we derive our amen. Amen. 
Now, I know that the branch doesn't necessarily say amen often, but he goes on, we might paraphrase, paraphrase by saying that Abram said amen to the Lord. Amen in scripture never means a petition, may it be so, but it always means a strong assertion of faith. It shall be or it is so. So the churches that you might have grown up in, again, not here, I'm not bitter, I would love it, just saying, when, when people say amen, it's an amen of agreeance, of assurance, let it be, that is so. So Abram says amen. I, I believe it. You, you say you're going to do this, amen, I believe it's going to take place. So what then did Abram get for his repentance and belief? This amen, God, I trust you, I believe in you, and not just in word, but look at my actions. My actions show to you, God, that I, I believed you, I followed you out of this land, I'm doing what you've asked me to do. What does he get? He gets it counted to him as righteousness. Yes, he gets a child in Isaac, and Dylan will cover that next week. Yes, the promised land will be fulfilled, but none of that pales in comparison that the righteousness that he gets from God. Righteousness, being in right standing. So when Abram, Abraham dies 175 years old, he goes before God in his throne. God looks at him and he's declared righteous, not because anything Abram's done, but in this sentence, he believes that God imputed to him. He gave him the righteousness of him. So that all of his sin, all of his iniquities is now gone. He's declared righteous because he did a lot of good things. No. Because he lived a perfect life. No. Because we see at the end of Genesis 14 that he, he tied 10% of the spoils. So that's what got him in in righteousness, right? No. Scripture is clear. He believed. He believed. Von Rad put it this way, but above all, his righteousness is not the result of any accomplishments, whether of sacrifice or acts of obedience. Rather, it is stated programmatically that belief alone has brought Abraham into a proper relationship with God. It is bonkers. The length that God makes possible for us to believe and be righteous, all we have to do is believe. I mean, the length that God goes to save sinners like us and what's required of us, righteousness. And how does that take place? Belief. I mean, salvation is so simple. And there's no religion like this. In every other world religion, there's strings attached. There's you got to do this, you got to do this. Make sure you're 51% good. Make sure you don't fall into this. Make sure you follow this law to the 10th degree. For us, it's belief. It's belief that his way is better than my way. In that belief, I am declared righteous. It just, again, it's bonkers. It makes no sense. How God would even think about doing this makes literally no, I mean, it, it would be like this. Uh, after the service, I pick one of you and we walk out to the parking lot and, and I've moved all of your cars, not that your cars aren't great, but I filled the entire parking lot with Bentleys and Ferraris and massive lifted F-250s and Duramax diesels. And, I mean, all of them. I mean, every dream come true is out there. And I just say, simply, do you believe I did that? You answer yes, they're all yours. If you answer no, they're not. Do you believe that I orchestrated that? The moment you say yes, they're all yours. 
I mean, again, really cheesy, dumb analogy, but that's a microcosm of what just takes place. All that's required of us is belief. So much so that this exact passage gets brought up three different times, really the entirety of three different New Testament chapters. We see this in Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2. It's such a mind-blowing idea that Paul and James had to spend so much time working through it. So as we start to land the plane, that's a total lie. I'm, I'm like halfway through. But as we start to land the plane, go with me to Romans 4. Because I want to look at Paul's explanation of this as, as he's convincing uh, these uh, Jewish believers now in uh, Rome what it looks like to follow Christ, what it looks like to be righteous, which is just simply to believe. It's just that simple, just to believe. So Romans, I just want to spend a few moments in Romans 4. I love the moment that I said that. A couple of people were like, I got to go pee. If you're really on halfway, bro, I gotta go. I understand. Romans 4, we're gonna pick it up in verse 18. In hope, oh, sorry, we're still flipping. Romans 4. This would be on the screen, but that was my bad. Don't look at the tech guys. They didn't screw anything up. Corey, you're good. I didn't send you this. Did they, time out real quick. People only look in the back when things mess up. But they do a really good work, don't they? So look back and be encouraged. Thank you guys for all you do. They don't believe in that clap, but it's okay. Romans 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. In hope he believed against hope. Basically, when there was no hope, he still believed. That he shall become, this is Abram, Abraham that we're talking about, that he should become the father of many nations as he has been told. So your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver according to the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, if you underline your Bible, this is the most important thing we're going to read this morning. Verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham was fully convinced. He fully believed that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness, as we see in Genesis 15, 16, 6. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Hold on to your seats because it's about to get crazy. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the same deal that was made with Abram, that that belief will make you righteous is now available to us. That all we have to do is believe that Jesus carried the weight of our sin, was murdered, crucified, dead, buried, and was raised. That's all that it takes, church. That's all that it takes is putting our faith and believe that God actually raised him from the dead for our benefit, the glory of God and forgiveness of our sins, and we can be made right with him. It takes belief. That's a good point for amens, right? Because that's where we are. All it's required is belief. That's it. Bonkers. Because if I was God, I'd make you fools do a bunch of stuff for me. I mean, really, though. 
Pharaoh had nothing on what I'd make y'all do. And we all would be that way. But we see the lovingness of God's grace and mercy on display because he made the covenant. He sends Christ for us. He gives us his word. All we have to do is believe. Fully convinced that God will do what he's promised. That is what saves us. And we see this again in 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might be made right with him. That's all that it takes is belief. But here's where we live, right? In our, in our cultural moment, here's where we live. To say we believe is very simplistic, right? I mean, I, I can say that I believe all day long. I can say, man, I, I believe that you ran a 440 in high school. I do. No, I don't. I believe that you're a really good dad. No, I don't. Yes, I believe that you handle your finances incredibly well. No, I don't. Right? We can all say that we believe simply and over and over and over again. And this is what happens in our culture today. Yeah, I believe in God. I, I, I believe that he sent Jesus. Yeah, I, I believe it. But this is where James, as he elaborates on this part, is going to go, no, no, no. Abraham believed and it was apparent by the way that he lived. Look with me at James 2, 18. James 2, 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the de demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Is James advocating for a legalistic view of faith, that you have to do all these things to earn the righteousness of God? By no means. But what James is saying is true belief is going to lead to true action every single time. That true belief, true righteousness is going to be revealed in true action. But this lackadaisical approach to our righteousness, our right standing before God, is either because we don't understand the weight of our sin and the consequences of that, or else we think we can earn it. Or else we think we can work at it. And that's Paul's all point in Galatians 3. Is he's going, but if you can earn it, then why did Jesus have to come? If you can earn your salvation, if you can earn your righteousness, then, then what in the world did Jesus die for? But you can't, so that's why he sent. But all that is required of us is belief. Not with our lips, but with our lives. And if we do that, we do that one simple thing, God covers everything else. He keeps every promise. He imputes his righteousness uh, into us through his son's blood on the cross. All we have to do is believe. So, so as we close, and this is real, just a couple questions for us. Christian, if you're a believer in this room, that means that at some point you've believed. You've, you've understood the weight and the severity of your sin and that there's no thing that you can do to earn your way into God's favor. There's no thing that you can do. There's no action. There's no repercussion that you can earn God's righteousness. We've believed that. But as life goes on, we've forgotten about that. And we've started to take more and more control of our own hearts and our own lives. And that God has put us in positions where I have to fix this. I have to be in control of this. And we see this uttered in Paul. 
or excuse me, in the Gospels, I believe, but help my unbelief. So the solution to your unbelief, to your lack of faith, is not you trying harder, but it's pleading with God to help your unbelief, to help you be obedient in what God's called you to do. So where is it, Christian, in our life where you are struggling to believe the promises of God and you've been wrestling over and over and over again to fix this by yourself? And maybe this morning is that morning you go, I'm I'm done fighting. Here's my fight. God, every promise you've ever made is true and you say that you love me and that you care for me and you'll never leave me nor forsake me, so it's yours. I'm giving this problem over to you. And here's, I mean, from maybe 10,000 feet, maybe not quite 30,000 foot, but Pastor Willie, here's what I see all the time. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Do not worry, for tomorrow will take care of itself. If God takes care of the birds and the air and the flowers of the field, how much more will I provide and take care of you, my children? But somewhere along the way, we think that we have to white-knuckle effort our tomorrow, that we have to take care of it that God's busier, he's got more important things to do than to worry about me and my little life and my little circumstance, so so I'll handle it. Anyone else? So maybe for us, this is the morning for us to go, no, no, no. If all I had to do was believe in the beginning and be obedient, all I'm gonna do today is believe and be obedient. You say, don't worry, all right. God, I'm not. You say, don't be afraid, okay, I'm not. You say, trust me because you love me, Okay, I will. And then there's some of us in this room that have grown up in the church and and we've walked the aisle and we've prayed the prayer and we say that we believe with our lips, but if we can just be real honest with ourselves, there's no real fruit or evidence of that. That we did the convenient thing, we got dunked, we walked the aisle, we prayed the prayer, but we can't single-handedly point at one point in our life and say, my belief in God has led me to do this. Obedience for me has looked like this because of how much God has done for me. I'm following him in this and this. And, And I would just lovingly say, hey, was that belief in the beginning genuine? Or was it the social norm and construct of our day? That of course you walk the aisle, of course you pray the prayer, of course you get baptized by the time you're eight. Of course you do. So I would just lovingly say, are you a true believer in the gospel? And then lastly, maybe you are not a believer, maybe you never actually walked the aisle, but maybe the Lord has been convicting your soul in this moment, in this morning, that you're so tired of trying and fighting and running and trying to earn this salvation over and over and over again. And you never really heard that all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is repent and believe and follow him and God will literally take care of everything else. Maybe you've never heard that. And so for any of those people, the elders will be in the back. And someone asked me one time, how do we know who the elders are that are in the back? So uh, Rob and Stephen and Greg, we all just stand up real quick so that people can recognize who the elders are. If you want to talk and pray with any of us, we'll be in the back in a few minutes, but we'd love to talk and pray with you. Thank you guys. And, and me as well, uh, I'll be back there. So here's what we're going into. Uh, communion is set up in the back. It's a time for us just to stop and to remember all that God has done by sending Christ. 
by putting him on the cross, by his blood dripping out, offering forgiveness to those who just believe that God has taken care of everything. All response is the same as Abram's response, belief. That's all that's required of us. So let us use this moment of communion to believe. And if you're not yet a believer, man, I'm so grateful that you're here and that you're processing through some of these things. But, but Scripture would actually tell us that, that the time of communion is only for the baptized believer. So sit, ponder, consider, come talk to us. But church, this is a time for us to remember all that God has done, the length that he's gone to offer righteousness and forgiveness to us. And then we sing. We sing our hearts out because of the love of God. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11 for us real quick, and then I'll pray, and we'll go into a time of communion. And 1 Corinthians 11 is the instructions for what we're about to walk into, which is the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming the Lord's righteousness. Whoever, therefore, eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So I'm going to pray. We can confess sin. We can examine our hearts. And then when you're ready, the tables are open in the back. So let's pray. Father, it is bonkers this morning to consider the length that you've gone to offer us your righteousness, your forgiveness, your life. God, that you go out of your way over and over and over and over again in the life of Abram, and all that's required of him is belief. And for us in this moment, you've gone above and beyond by sending your only begotten son to be crucified, to be murdered that you've taken all of salvation on your own. You've done everything that it takes to offer salvation. Now all that's required of us is belief. And with that belief comes righteousness, comes salvation, comes a new life. So Father, let us in this moment just be sucked into the weight of that decision and to the love that you have for us, and to the grace and the mercy that you freely offer us, that you forever and always go out of your way to offer us forgiveness, to give us your righteousness. So as we take communion together this morning, let us remember that. Let us remember of what we're partaking in, your unconditional covenant that you're going to take all of salvation in your hands. All we have to do is believe. God, we say this often. We love you. But as we study a text like that, it is obvious and apparent that your love for us 
is unfathomable. And therefore, I feel silly saying that we love you in light of how much you love us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.